This volume of Classic Wrestling Memories is dated to the life and career of Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I'm your host, a.k.a. Seth. I'm your host, Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax. And, well, it's once again, it's with a bit of a heavy heart that we bring this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories to you. Because, once again, the wrestling world has lost a legend, a very well-known name, in Jim the Anvil Neidhart, who passed away... Uh, earlier this week in August of 2018. And here to help me talk the life and career of Jim D'Anville Neidhart is my usual co-host here for Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Um, looking forward to doing this because uh, for personal reasons, we'll talk about that as we go on. We know we promised you last time uh, we were going to talk about the uh, the next episode that we were going to have was going to be about the greatest wrestler on God's green earth, Harley race. Uh, I've been playing email and phone tag with Harley, uh, which has been part of the issue. And then unfortunately Jim passed. So we, we kind of switched gears, but we will be getting that episode about, about the handsome Harley race in the near future. So keep, keep tuned for that. If you were thinking you were going to tune into the latest castle, Western memories and get the Harley race that is coming. Don't worry. But yeah. Let's uh, talk about Jim Neidhart. Absolutely. And one thing, I can truly say about Jim the Anvil Neidhart, there were two things for him that were really trademark, in my opinion. Uh, one is, of course, that pointy kind of Shakespe- almost Shakespearean goatee that he had. And there was that trademark laugh and kind of half-crazy promo style because Jim the Anvil Neidhart, he, his, his promos were certainly unique in that it definitely fit his look and his character, don't you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. And eh, let's be honest, when he was in his heyday is what most people remember him from his 80s run. You have to do a lot of talking. They had Jimmy Hart, who's a pretty good talker in his own right, you know? Right. And, you know, Bret Hart was never a bad talker. I mean, he, he may not have always been the greatest promo. He certainly wasn't Ric Flair or Dusty when it came to promos, but he cut an effective promo. And I would be remiss talking about memorable things of Jimmy Anvil Neidhart. I mean, how great was that? Heart Foundation theme in the 1980s. I mean, it's probably the greatest one-note song you're ever going to hear. One of my favorite wrestling themes of all time, without question. The thing about Anvil, I I think I'm kind of stating the obvious here, really, is given his size, his build, and his wrestling style, he actually made for a perfect tag team partner. And I do mean that uh, as a compliment, of course, probably his greatest work was with the Hart Foundation. But I think you get what I mean, and I think the, the listeners get what I mean when I say he was perfect to be a tag team partner. Sure, sure. I think that um, it's not so common nowadays, but I think you remember from when we were fans in the 70s and 80s, you would hear the announcers talk about the uh, this guy's a tag team specialist. And it was a, it, that was a moniker that was thrown around a lot for guys like oh, Bobby Eaton or Arn Anderson uh, uh, early in, in his, you know, his career, I, Ricky Steamboat got a little bit of that because he had so many successful tag teams. Uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was ever said about Jim Neidhart, but I think he kind of fit that mold too. Don't you? Yes, absolutely. And he really was quite the athlete 
uh, in his youth because he actually did go to college on a scholarship. Now, before we get into that, one thing that some fans may not know, I mean, obviously, pretty much all the uh, typical average fan knows that Bret Hart and the Hart family are Canadians. Well, I mean, I believe Helen was American, but the point is, uh, all, all the Hearts were born and raised in Canada, whereas Jim Neidhart, he was actually born and raised in Florida. So he is full-blown American. Uh, you know, he, he, he obviously married uh, Elizabeth Hart, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit, but all of his growing up and education were in the States. And he, like I said, born in Florida, and he went to high school and I believe college on sports scholarships because in high school, he played some football. I believe he did some track as well, but he was best known for being the shot put, which I think really the only time you see a shot put done by athletes is usually you know like for the olympics or something like that right. or or for right. college because the shot put that's where you take that it's about the size of a softball i think but it's a really heavy ball and you kind of Six, 16 pounds for men okay yeah that is that is pretty hefty but yeah you spin around several times and then you just mm. fling that ball as far as you can yeah there are a lot of uh wrestlers especially from jim's era that were either discus throwers or shot putters um, I did a little bit of it in high school, but I was more focused on soccer in the spring. Uh, shot put uh, it doesn't require as much technique as discus. Uh, it's more about raw strength, but there is a lot of technique involved. You know, it, it, it's it, you're really you're not throwing it like you throw a baseball. You're getting it up next to your neck, and you're essentially pushing it and uh, propelling it that way. And you also there's some ways that you you know you you bend you spin at the hips and at your core to get some snap to it. But he was quite good. I don't know when he moved to Los Angeles from Florida, but sometime in his youth he did because he did attend high school in L.A. And um, <clears throat> he, bro- he I think it was his junior or maybe it was his senior high school. He set a California state record uh, for the shot put that stood for like 10 or 15 years, which that's amazing when you think about it because, one, that's a long time for any record to stand in track and field. They're always being broken in the college and high school and even the Olympic levels. But California is a big state with a lot of athletes, so think about that. You know, this isn't like having oh, the Rhode Island state shot put record where there's right. only so many kids. This is the most populated state in the country, so there were a lot of, of of obviously other shot putters. And from the time he broke the record to the time it got broken, ten fifteen years later, that's pretty impressive. But like you said, it caught the eyes of the coaches at UCLA, and he went to UCLA on a scholarship as a shot putter. Um, Obviously, track and field athletes don't get the, the full ride scholarships like football and basketball players do. But I, he obviously got some of his education paid for, and, and I believe at some point he did so well at the collegiate level he did attract some some buzz. Might even had a tryout for an Olympic team. He was that good. So I mean, he was obviously quite strong and athletic guy from a very young age. And what some fans may not know is out of college he actually produced pursued a football career. I mean, he legitimately did play with NFL players. I don't believe he was actually drafted, so he was never officially part of a team, but he did play for the Cowboys and the Raiders, two of the probably the best-known teams in in the NFL. But again, it was all preseason and, and practicing. He never actually played in any mm. official games, if I understand it right. Yeah, yeah, because the way the NFL works for our fan, for our listeners that aren't fans of pro football, 
they start out uh, – every team in the league starts out with – I can't remember what the roster size is, but it's, I think it's close to 100. And they have by the by – the, by the, usually it's about the first week before the, of the regular season starts, they have to cut their roster down to 52. And there is usually a couple of dates during the preseason where you have to reduce your team to a, a, a smaller number. You know, so it, it it that's what the preseason's for. It's it's for the the coaches to decide we want this guy to make our team. You know, so that's what preseason games are for is is to get a look at guys that you know aren't veterans or aren't known commodities, rookies, guys you got off of waivers, stuff like that. And that's you know he was good enough to to make those squads and you know make it all the way, but not make the final cut. Which you know, if, for perspective from a modern era. That's what Brock Lesnar did when he when he tried out for the Vikings. You know, mm-hmm. he made it all the way to the final cut, and then they cut him. Same thing with 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 Bill Goldberg, uh, with the Falcons and 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 the uh, the Panthers. So it's it's not that unheard of for for uh, some some known wrestlers to you know make it all the way and just not quite. Ron Simmons was another one like that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there you go. And if I recall correctly, this has even happened to people who may have been top draft picks like people like in the first couple rounds they get oh, this yeah. big uh, high round draft pick and then a couple couple weeks maybe a month or two later they get cut yeah yeah i mean and and so i don't think it's me personally having played football at a very high level it, it's nothing to sneeze at if you get if you get invited to a, a training camp and play in the preseason with a pro team that's I mean, I don't think I need to speak, bringing up Ron Simmons, I don't think I need to speak any more about how, how much more successful can you think of a college career than what Ron Simmons has, for goodness sakes, it's Florida State. That's a national powerhouse. His numbers retired there. He was fifth in the Heisman voting in a position that rarely ever gets Heisman votes at, at nose tackle, and yet he wasn't good enough to make a roster. But he did okay for himself in the wrestling business, I think, don't you? Yeah, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but after the football aspects died out uh, according to the wwe uh, official video i mean this is where i'm, I'm getting this from i i uh-huh. don't really know as many of the details as i'd like but it was his athletic ability that caught the eye of Stu hart so it sounds like Stu hart i'm guessing it probably wasn't directly he probably he probably had somebody on his behalf talk to jim about it but that's really where the wrestling ambitions came from so this would have been like 78 79 or so somewhere somewhere around there you know you know mid 20s out of out of college yeah yeah late late 70s yeah for you gotta remember our listeners need to remember that this was an era kayfabe was still big there was no internet um uh, there were only a select few places you could go to get trained back then it wasn't like today where every tom dick and harry that knows how to put on a headlock properly buys a ring, opens up a wrestling school and claims they're a wrestling trainer. You know, it's that's sadly what the business has devolved to back in this era. There were only select numbers of, 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 of places you could go to get trained. It was a very insular business. A lot of the people that were trained were either second or third generation people or, or they were just what we're talking about. It was guys that were good athletes that had the look and the size and the strength that was, you know, desired amongst wrestling promoters. Uh, but they were either in a sport like amateur wrestling, because this is before UFC too, you know, or a sport like like track and field where there was no professional level. 
So they were, you know, they would kind of, those guys would show up on these, these trainers radars or guys like we talked about, like a Jam Neidhart, like a Ron Simmons, who, who had a shot at the NFL, but it didn't work out, you know? Um, so those were those, and those guys often got approached by trainers directly or indirectly to, Hey, try out wrestling. Uh, it sounds like, you know, that's probably what happened with Jim too. So it, it, it doesn't shock me. Um, I mean, for goodness sakes, Hulk Hogan was discovered in a bank working as a bank teller by the Briscoes, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, those, that's just the way the business, it isn't like it is nowadays. You know, the, the Daniel Bryan's AJ Styles of the world who grew up or CM punks that grew up these lifelong wrestling fans and had no desire to be anything but a pro wrestler. And then they were able to find a school and go to it and, and become stars and happened back then. The fact that they, 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 t- the, the, the business was so insular back then they took a pride on taking guys like Jim Neidhart who were legitimate athletic, tough guys and breaking them down and seeing if they really wanted it that bad, you know, and Stu Hart and Stu Hart was, was one of the worst at that. We've talked before when we talked to other territories. We've talked about, you know, Bob Roop and 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 Eddie Graham and what they you know and and uh, and Hiro Matsuda down in Florida or what the Andersons did here in the Carolinas or you know uh, Dory Funk Senior used to do to the guys in Amarillo, uh, you know. So uh, it was if you go back and listen to the episode that long in depth interview I did with Susan Green, Joe Blanchard did it to her and Blackjack Mulligan. It was. Didn't stretch him as much. He just made them run till they were going to vomit. You know, it was that they, those guys in that era that, that trained, they got off on that. You know, that was, that was part of their, and Stu Hart was right at the top of that list of guys that liked to do that. You know, take these tough guys that had, were strong and could throw up the heavy iron in the weight room and played football and been a co- high school or college wrestler and just break them down, put them in shoot holds, make them cry, make them vomit run them till their tongues were hanging we've all heard the horror stories of what Vern put like flair and steamboat and those guys through that's just what they did you know so anybody who made it through the Stu Hart training first off to get to get on Stu Hart's radar based on your athletic ability that tells me something but the fact that you made it through that legitimate torture chamber that was what Stu put guys through you can't have any more respect to me from a guy who used to do this for a living you cannot because believe me, if you didn't have heart, you, if there was just a little inkling of I can't do this, Stu Hart was going to find it and he was going to break you, literally and figuratively. So Jim had something, you know? Right. Because you're saying that's uh, how the old school was. I think you could probably look up old school in a dictionary and there would be a picture of Stu Hart. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's the wool, the wool trunks and, you know, the no knee pads, the, the cauliflowered ears, you know, it's just. <laughs> This, there was a look of those guys from his era, from the 40s and 50s, you know, that would just back by the 70s. The 70s rolled around. Guys didn't even look like that anymore, did they? I mean, they, they were just gone. Right. If anyone, if anyone wonders what we're talking, the look we're talking about, I unfortunately do, unfortunately do not have a picture of Stu Hart. I never was able to meet the man. But if you go to my Facebook, and, and I'm sure that you know you can find a link on the on our website to my Facebook account. I have a picture in there of Luthez, be shaking Luthez's hand, which is one of my biggest honors in my wrestling career. Look at the man's hands. Look at the man's ears. That's what we're talking about. You know, <laughs> this guy was 70 something years old when I met him and just gnarled hands and cauliflowered ears. And I'm sitting here thinking this guy's seven years old and he can still whoop my butt, you know? <laughs> I mean, just, right. And by the way, if you want to follow along with our discussion here about Jim Neanderthal Neidhart's career, the show notes, if they aren't appearing in your 
podcast device, just go to classicwrestlingmemories.com slash anvil, A-N-V-I-L, and you will see the show notes for this volume here. So getting into Jim's wrestling career now, naturally, since he was trained by Stu Hart, that means that the first territory he would have worked in would have been Stampede. And he did, I want to say he did a lot of solo matches there, but that's really was kind of him cutting his teeth on a a territorial basis. Right, right. And uh, I think a lot of his early stuff, Stu always had good working relationships with New Japan, with Anoki's promotion. So they were always doing talent exchanges. I believe a lot of the early stuff that, that Jim had was against some of these Japanese talent coming over from, you know, on being lent out by Anoki. So, but that wasn't unusual in that territory at all. So, um, that's probably why a lot of the guys that came out of Calgary in that era had a little bit more diversified in ring style because they were learning, they were learning legitimate old school shoot wrestling from Stu, combining it with, you know, what we consider North American wrestling and with a, with a splash of the Japanese strong style mixed in there, you know? So that's a, that's an interesting base. You, you weren't necessarily going to get that if you started out in somewhere down here in the South or you started out in New York because it just didn't have that kind of diversity, you know? Right. And during his time in Stampede, according to Wikipedia at least, he did hold the tag team titles twice, once with Hercules Ayala, who's uh, not to be confused with Hercules Hernandez, and uh, another wrestler by the name of Mr. Hito, or, uh, which... Right, uh, which is one, of those Japanese, one of those Japanese guys I'm talking about. <laughs> right. But after Stampede, the next territory he would have worked for would have been, I believe, Georgia. And then this would have been before no, the Crockett's, right? I, yeah, I, don't, I think I thought his next territory was Mid-South. Or what? did he go to Georgia first? I can't remember. It's right he around those, in there with the, you know that, that, that early 80s, yeah. Yeah, he ran both those territories back-to-back. And once again, he was a tag team guy. I know in Mid-South, he tagged with Butch Reed. And in Georgia, he tagged with King Kong Bundy. So um, two pretty good names right there, too, don't you think? I right, mean, uh, right, ab- absolutely. And, and it also fits the mold of something we've talked about before. Uh, those old-school territory guys, they would put a young guy with a veteran to teach him how to work. And also teach him how to live on the road. I mean, now, granted, Bundy and, and Butch Reed were young at that point. Both of them were. But they've been the business longer than Jim Neidhart had at that point. You know, they could kind of show him the ropes. And and I think the Butch Reed one makes a lot of sense because Butch Reed, had a, uh, he, he played for the Chiefs. He's another guy of those guys that played football, you know, was a college football star and big, strapping, tough guy. I, I think Butch Reed is a highly underrated talent that, fortunately, unfortunately, most of our fans and listeners only know – of Butch Reed from, you know, probably his time in Doom with Ron Simmons. Right. Or may- maybe his run is the natural for Vince, for Vince you know, in the, in the, in the early 80s with the, bl- with the bleach blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Butch Reed was that awesome, awesome baby face in the late 70s and early 80s in the Southern Territories. Uh, Dave Meltzer has said for a long time when he, was, when he was in college, he vacationed, did spring break in Florida from California and he went to a match and saw Butch Reed versus Ric Flair live. And for a long time, that was that was the best match he ever said he'd seen live for a long time until I think his first trip to Japan. So that should give you an idea to how good Butch Reed was. You know, he hung for forty five minutes with Ric Flair and impressed Dave Meltzer. Uh, what else can I say about how good the guy was in the ring? I don't think that says anything else. You know, um, 
this would have been the mid south that was in the transition of because like I said we can't remember which territory came first, but this mid south territory time would have been pre UWF, so they were still part of the NWA at the time. Uh, this would have been when McGurk had not sold the Bill Watts yet, but Bill Watts was essentially running the company. And in the, the Georgia era, it was that entire era of Tommy Rich was obviously the top babyface in the territory. Uh, but there was a lot of turmoil because Ray Gunkel died. Uh, right, I think when he was there, I think Ray might have still been alive, so things hadn't quite got crazy. But once Ray Gunkel died, things got nuts, and then that led to Black Saturday where Vince bought the TV time, and then Crockett came in afterwards and essentially merged Georgia with the Carolinas. There was a crazy about three-year run with Georgia, the territory itself. Uh, but I think he was there right before that happened. You know, So there was – and in that era, you would be talking about uh, probably Ole booking, you know. Um, so this would also have been around the same time as the the last battle of Atlanta, which I think is now on the network, but with no commentary or no sound. That was yes. that just extremely bloody brawl between Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich and the Omni in Atlanta, and um, other big stars in Georgia at the time would have been like Bob Bob Armstrong, Paul Ellering. Before he got injured and moved to managing, uh, Ole, Dusty, Harley was coming in and out as a champion. So a lot of good talent in the Georgia territory at this time. You know, veterans and guys that knew what they were doing that Jim could be around and learn from. Not, not, not pretty good territories to start out. Calgary, mid south, and Georgia in that era. You know, a lot of good talent. Right, absolutely, and it was also in Calgary where he earned the Anvil. Nickname because didn't he do something like a uh, throwing an anvil if I recall correctly? Right, yeah. His original gimmick was the animal. It was Jim the Animal Nightheart, and to get over his strength and his shot putting background, Stu did some kind of promotion where he put up like an entry fee for some kind of con- strongman contest that involved throwing an anvil, and Jim won it. And then he, that's what he changed his gimmick to was the anvil. He threw it like, uh, I mean, I don't know how heavy an anvil is, but yeah, we're talking about like the old anvils from like the Bugs Bunny cartoons. And he threw one like 16 feet, almost 17 feet. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's no doubting Jim Neidhart was a strong man, you know? Absolutely. So we'll flash forward a couple of years here past uh, the Mid-South Tag Champions and uh, the time with Jerry Jarrett and Continental. And right. he would have been in Florida, and I believe he left Florida for WWF at the time. And I think this was almost to the month around the time Eddie Graham committed suicide. So I don't know if one had to do with, with the other or if it was just I, no, chance. I thought, but... I, I thought he went back to Calgary for a real brief run right before Vince signed him. Okay. I, I could be wrong, but I know that I, I know that it was – wasn't it around this this time? I mean, he met Ellie when he was training, and they had gotten married. That would be Elizabeth. Ellie is mm-hmm. uh, that's and and please, folks, don't ask me where she falls at the birth order of all the Hart kids because there's too many of them to remember. I just remember Owen's the baby. That's that's the only thing I can remember. Yeah, uh, if uh, Bobby Heenan were still with us, he he'd have the line something about uh, yeah, Helen had like three or four in the first litter. Exactly. I mean, there was there were a lot of there were, there were a lot of hearts. Okay, I mean there was like I think I think it was what twelve altogether. I think it was like six boys and six girls, or, or maybe seven boys and yes. and and, and, and yeah. five girls. I can't remember. It's like it's an insane amount. Let's just put it that way. Hel- Helen and, and Stu they 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 had a big family, you know. Um, but it was 
so when he, I, I don't know how it worked, but I, that's when he was having his kids because Natty was born in '82, I think you said in your research. Yes, yes. And I believe she's the oldest of three. I think his, I think his youngest was born. They're all girls, by the way. He had all girls. I think she was born around '85, around this time period we're talking about now, when he was in maybe in, in Calgary for a cup of coffee, and then 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 Vince signed him. And if I remember right, um, you'll have to do the research here. That was essentially on Brett's wishes, correct? I think that does sound right because I have not seen any of the matches. I've looked around and I don't know if video footage exists. I know there's a lot of stuff on the WWE Network that I will link in the show notes at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com slash Anvil. But yeah, his early first couple weeks, maybe first couple months working for Vince McMahon... He was paired with Mr. Fuji as a heel, and some of his early matches were actually against Bret Hart because, obviously, in those days, Internet didn't exist unless you were really, really, really privy to the business at the time. You probably had no idea that they were brothers-in-law. But Bret Hart, believe it or not, in this early run for WWF, had a cowboy gimmick. And, you know, while... I can say that cowboys do exist in Canada. You know, two words, Hank Snow. But uh, a a cowboy gimmick for Bret Hart, I mean, that's probably one of the furthest gimmicks I could think of for for Bret Hart. And my understanding is it was Bret that went to Vince uh, about it, to to team Mm. them. I I think that probably might have been something. I mean, you would know this part better than I would train, but... That might have been something that might have been suggested by the boys, so to speak, as a whole. Maybe they talked in right. the locker room saying, hey, maybe we're better off teaming than wrestling against each other. Yeah, I haven't heard anything on that. I just to, to give a historical perspective to our listeners about the time period we're talking about, this is when Vince is beginning his, his national expansion. And so he's essentially doing the same thing his dad did. What his dad would do, and we've talked about it before, is – Hey, I, he would go to all the territories and handpick a top guy from a territory and take him for a month or two to have somebody to work Bruno or Bob Backlund, right? And in exchange, he'd give Mondre for a run. You know, that's how Bill Watts wound up there. That's how you know uh, the Graham brothers wound up there. You know, Eddie and, and Dr. Jerry Graham. That's how a lot of these Southern stars wound up in New York for a run. We talked about when we talked about the uh, George Danimal Steel. That's how he wound up there, but it was because he was wrestling only in in you know in in Michigan, and he and Bruno had that run with him and suggested he come back, and that's just how it worked. I think so, also that may have been how the Valiants got in. You know, Jimmy yep, yeah, pre Boogie Woogie Man, and uh, yep, yeah, exactly, you know, Johnny, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that's what was going on. Well. Vince Jr. was doing the same thing, but at the same time, trying to keep guys around longer. He wasn't bringing them in and saying – he wasn't going to the promoter in the, in the territory and going, hey, you know, I'll, I'm going to take this guy for a couple months and I'll give you Andre. He was just taking the guys, you know, and, and he, he, he handpicked the top guys from, from – and he, he decimated the AWA around this time. I mean he got Hogan. He got Bobby Heenan. He got uh, – you know, he did <laughs> – the Road Kirk Warriors, but yeah, yeah Kurt Henning like, came later on. But the Road Warriors came down here to the south to the Crockets. Uh, he came down here and he got Sarge. He got Piper from the Crockets. You know, he got Orndor from Florida. 
Well, he hit Calgary really hard too, and he got Brett, and he got Jim Neidhart, and he got Davey Boy, and he got Dynamite. They were all working for for Stu in Calgary. And like you said, Brett was originally a singles guy, babyface, and Jim was in a heel tag team with Fuji. Fuji was another guy that he got from down here in the Carolinas. And I think you're probably right. I mean, they had obviously worked together. They were family because Jim was married to Brett's sister at this point. And it probably was one of those conversations at the hotel or the bar or in the locker room where Brett said, you know, I'm not really happy in this gimmick. Uh, you know, are you happy with Fuji? Well, why don't we go to Vince and try to put ourselves together, you know? And thus, that's how the Hart Foundation was born. I mean, the names sell themselves or, or sells right. the gimmick, you might say, because you have Brett Hart. You know, his mm-hmm. real legitimate name, Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Again, that's his real name, and Jimmy married to a Hart. Hart. Yes, and and, and 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 when you bring Jimmy up, there's another example. Jimmy was the top manager in Memphis. <laughs> Vince, you know, just stealing talent from other territories. And my understanding, according to Jimmy Hart himself, was he didn't know what he was going to do. They specifically brought him in to manage the two of them. You know, it just it was it was the it was the little bow on that package to complete right. the package. Mm-hmm. And it, so, I mean, no offense to Vince McMahon. Obviously, all three of those guys went on to have fantastic careers. But you know, he eventually stole two guys from Calgary and a guy from Memphis and turned them into the top tag heel tag team. You know, <laughs> right? So the Hart Foundation existed as a heel tag team from I want to say mid to late '85 uh, was when they started and were there for for several years because obviously that that famous battle royal in WrestleMania 2, which had football players and, and all that. Brett and Jim were both in that battle royal. Yep. And that, that really was their first big pay-per-view or match appearance uh, for Vince at the time. Right. I don't, I mean, they, they, I'm sure they were on TV before then, but right. not anything as far as the major stage goes. No, and he immediately pushed them to the moon. They were immediately put into the tag team title picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their, their most legendary foes became their brother-in-law, and his buddy, the Bulldogs, British Bulldogs. Because, of course, Davey Boy was married to another heart girl, Diana, and and, and, and Dave, once again, they were both brought in as singles guys uh, because what they were doing in Calgary, Davey Boy and, and Dave, Dave Boy and Dynamite were actually feuding in Calgary. You know, They both were British guys, and that was kind of the angle. And I can't remember who had the book for Stu at the time. I want to say maybe Bruce did. Hart had the book at the time. So they were working at, they were working as as against each other. Well then Vince got them both and made them a tag team. And there was just obviously the 80s were the heyday for tag teams in general in wrestling. Well down here in the south we had of course the Rock the Expresses. We had Rock and Roll versus Midnight. Why well, I don't think I'm I'm going on a limb by saying that the Bulldogs versus the Hart Foundation was kind of the northern version of that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's fair to say. So it was early 1987, that the Hart Foundation beat the British Bulldogs for the tag team titles. The Bulldogs had won them at the previous WrestleMania, WrestleMania two. Who had they beaten? Had they beaten Valentine and, and Beefcake? I believe it was Valentine and Beefcake. Yeah, the Dream Team, and uh, they held the titles for all the a good chunk of 1987. I think from spring to the fall of 87 and that's when they lost the titles to strike force and one of the things i also want to mention during this initial title run was wrestlemania 3 arguably the best wrestlemania of, of them all where most people remember 
Hogan versus Andre and Savage versus Steamboat. The Hart Foundation were the tag team champions at that point, you know, mm-hmm. relatively fresh off beating the Bulldogs for them. They won the titles due to the crooked referee at the time, Danny Davis. And I wasn't watching live at this point, but I was renting videotapes a couple years later that would go over some of this history and some of these matches. Um, Danny Davis essentially was responsible for them winning the titles. And because of that, Danny Davis was fired from being a referee. So he became a wrestler and he would basically wrestle in kind of a mock referee uniform. But what I'm getting at is WrestleMania three. It was the tag team champions of the Hart Foundation teaming with Danny Davis against a six man team of Davy Boy, Dynamite Kid and Tito Santana. So the, the tag titles obviously were not on the line in a six-man tag. But that also, if you watch WrestleMania three, that was a pretty good match in its own right. But I think that kind of got uh, diminished by the popularity of Hogan and Andre and Savage versus Steamboat. Right. And if I remember right, part of the, the angle going into that was uh, around the same time that, that the Hart Foundation won the belts from the Bulldogs, uh, Tito was the Intercontinental Champion, and he had lost the belt to, I can't remember who, but it also was Danny Davis's chicanery that caused that as well. Was that right? Does that sound right to you? That would certainly make I sense, because that would and explain I, I why Tito would be, would be teaming with him. Right, I can't remember who Tito lost the belt to. Valentine, maybe? I want to say, well, it would have been... Uh, maybe he would be a year earlier or so, or maybe, you know what? No, I think no, maybe no, no. He, Tito he might have been challenging the, Savage for the title. No, and, and, no he okay. lost it to Savage. That's what it was. You're, you're okay. right. You're on the right track. He, and then, of course, Savage immediately went into the feud with Steamboat over the belt. So that's what it was. Okay. So, yeah, they all, all three of the, all three of the baby faces had heat with Danny Davis and the Hart Foundation. So there you go. But in October 1987, that's when. The Hart Foundation lost the titles to Strike Force, and they still were heels and went on into WrestleMania Four, where they were also both in a battle royal. That was the '88 battle royal, I believe. That mm-hmm. the last two guys were Bad News Brown and Brett, and Bad News Brown basically double crossed Brett and threw him out of the ring, and and Brett smashed the title or the the, the, the trophy, I should say. Again, I wasn't watching live. I, w- I just I remember watching a, a videotape of WrestleMania 4. And that really mm-hmm. was about the time, I want to say, they turned babyface. Because obviously, right. you know, striking back at a heel for crossing you certainly would seem like a babyface uh, thing to do. But I think it was one of those slow burn turns where they didn't just all of a sudden turn face. It's like right. they did that weaving of di- dissension here and there over a couple of weeks to months. Right. And it was later in 88 that Jimmy Hart, I want to say, uh, forsake them for the Rougeos because the Rougeos were a babyface tag team. And whether it was by design or whether it was just how things flowed, the Rougeos were getting booed even though they were acting like babyfaces. And so right. they turned heel by allying with Jimmy Hart. And that's really what turned the Hart Foundation babyface. And I think, I think the Hart Foundation's babyface turn uh, was not dissimilar to the short babyface run that the the Midnight's had down here. Same type thing. Let's be honest. The the four guys in the ring, Brett, Jim, Davy Boy, and Dynamite, are for the best athletes on your roster. Night in and night out, they're working each other and having some of the best and most entertaining matches on the card. The fans obviously loved the Bulldogs, but they were beginning to see how good Jim and Brett were. You know, so 
kind of like we said, what we did down here with the Midnights. They just kind of, I mean, essentially, I think the only thing that was keeping them heel was Jimmy Hart. Like, pretty much the only thing keeping Midnights heel was Jim Cornette, you know? It was the same dynamic. And um, I think it just, you know, we've seen that many times in a row. We talk about that all the time. Some of the best babyface turns are the organic ones where the fans just start, have been watching these people for so long, this wrestler, this tag team, and they're like, you know, I really like these guys. I don't want to boo them anymore. I think that's kind of what happened there, don't you? Yeah, it's a similar story with Savage and uh, Piper, really. Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Dusty Rhodes. There's so many of them. Yeah, another modern take on that would be John Cena, quite frankly. Sure, sure. I think the Shield was kind of like that when when they split them up. You know, they had gotten to the point where the crowd kind of got over, kind of was liking all three guys in the Shield. And then they turned on Roman, but once again, this is classic wrestling memories, not, <laughs> not current <laughs> wrestling. But anyway, uh, yeah. It happens. It, 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 that is very common in wrestling. You know, I don't want to say too much. I don't want. I don't want some of the, the more modern fans to feel so empowered they can do whatever they want. But I'll shut up now. <laughs> Fast forward a couple of years, uh, which can be summarized as the Hart Foundation essentially feuding with Jimmy Hart and his tag team of the season, so to speak. And we get to 1990, and this is really when I was watching wrestling regularly. So I remember these parts pretty vividly to this day, and. The Hearts got into the tag title picture again, this time with the newly formed heel trio of Demolition. They weren't newly formed. Obviously, Demolition had been around for years, but this is when they turned heel by adding Crush to to the stable. And they had what I thought was a very good match for its time. And I watched it actually in preparation for the show, and I think it it holds up. SummerSlam 1990, they had a two out of three falls match with Demolition that... The Hart Foundation won, and that kind of freed up Demolition to feud with the incoming Road Warriors slash Legion of Doom, and the Hart Foundation then carried the titles up until the following year. But one thing I do want to mention about this, again, because I have vivid memories of collecting the aftermags at this point, I had bought a Pro Wrestling Illustrated in late 1987, and in that there was a big write-up about this surprising victory that the Rockers had over the Hart Foundation, because at the time the Rockers were my favorite team, and the Rockers were listed as the tag team champions, and here was this long-involved article saying that Neidhart was so disheartened by the loss, no, no pun intended, that he was contemplating retirement, and Brett was considering going on as a solo career. Now, remember this, because we're going to come back to it. Anyway, right. the the Rockers' title win was never truly recognized. The on-screen explanation was that Jack Tunney reversed it due to a ring rope breaking during the right. match. Well, that, there's a there's there's a long convoluted story behind that that all four individuals involved have talked about publicly. It was the plan all along, I think, because they they had plan they wanted Brett to go to go singles. You know, Brett was essentially becoming the breakout star of the, of the tag team. Uh, they also, they felt the rockers had paid enough dues. The rockers were over. They want to put the belts on them. And it just, it was even without the rope breaking, which was legitimate, by the way. Um, it, it just was not a good match. They had had great matches before. And I think a lot of the heat between Brett and Sean, this is kind of the, kind of the, the, the beginning of it. I think, you know, some of the animosity that we, we, that became legendary, 
was from this and it just it didn't click that night and i think it was the original turn i think the original change was taped for a saturday night's main events isn't that right and then they never wound up airing it or something like that they did do a match earlier in the year before the heart foundation won the titles and demolition basically came out and laid to waste everybody for the double double dq or uh-huh. match match getting thrown out but I'm also remembering this write-up in Pro Wrestling Illustrated because the, like I said, uh, Jim and I are considering retirement uh, at the time, at least in in storyline uh, in storyline sense. But the article had used this saying, paraphrased by me. This isn't the exact wording, obviously, because it's been almost thirty years. But it was a two out of three falls match with the Rockers and the Hart Foundation, and in the third fall, the Hearts were quote going frustrated. The hearts were getting frustrated and resorting to brawling tactics because in those days in the magazines, nobody would say, well, they started playing heel. You know, it's it was a storyline of them essentially resorting to heel type tact- tactics so the crowd would cheer the Rockers win. Yeah, the, t- the terms that the they would use back then in the after mags for baby faces was a fan favorite. And the term they would use for heels was rule breaker. Right. And if just you, I don't know, this might actually be a good whole episode. How those mag, those kayfabe mags, the after mags worked back in the day uh, was essentially they would call all the different territories and say, hey, you got any, you got any pictures? You got any storylines you want to to send us? And they would a lot of times some some bookers. And Bill Aptor's talked about this before in shoot interviews. He just kind of knew he had a schedule. I think it was on Tuesdays. He would call all the all the offices. Charlotte, Atlanta, Memphis, New York, Detroit, whatever. And some bookers were more forthcoming than others, but almost all of them trusted him uh, uh, because he would he would keep, he would keep kayfabe, he would keep things within storylines uh, that you know he would kind of go off on his own and kind of create stuff. And some of the bookers would play off of that in their own booking. I get a feeling, and this is all speculation on my part, ladies and gentlemen. They probably he probably called. New York talked to somebody on the booking committee, Tony Gurria or Pat Patterson or somebody like that, you know, and they said, yeah, we got, we got this title switch. We're going to put the belts on the rockers. We're going to have Brett and Brett and uh, Jim drop them to them. And we're going to do it for Saturday night's main event. They told them that before the match had been filmed. Okay. And they would tell them that kind of stuff. So Bill could write the stories and get it out to press. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Right. So approximately the time that, Right, the readers would read that. It would be usually within a month or six weeks. I think was approximately so my, my, the, completely yeah. speculation on my part, but I bet you that's what happened. I bet you Bill Apter called one of the bookers for Vince. They said, "Hey, we're going to drop the belt." He writes this whole big story, and then everything happens. You know, right. but, but this should give you an insight to how how good Bill Apter is at what he did. It, there is that. There is even though it never made television. I don't know if it's on the network, but there is clips of it you can find online. Brett and Jim visibly get fr- – well, even even Sean and Marty do too. They all four get visibly frustrated with how bad the match is going and the rope breaking. So this whole idea of the of, of the hearts getting getting a little rougher and being more heelish, that actually really did happen. So you know, kudos to Bill Apter. That's how good he was at what he did. You know, he kind of <laughs> he mm-hmm. kind of predicted it before it happened. Just he presented it as a story that and, – and let's be honest. Had the rope not broke, the match been better, it would have happened. You know, that was the plan. But, I mean, plans change, 
canceled, delayed, postponed. It, that's kind of just life in general, not just wrestling, right? Right. Card subject to change, but exactly. <laughs> the most famous, most famous caveat in all all of wrestling: card subject right. to change. <laughs> So fast forward to WrestleMania 7, largely considered one of the worst WrestleManias, quite frankly. Is 7 as bad as 11? Because I think 11 is universally considered the worst, isn't it? It's up there. But the main thing I remember about 7 was, of course, the Warrior-Savage match. It was probably yeah. considered the, the best match of Warrior's career, but you know that's, that's kind of beside the point. Was that the one where, where Savage cracked him on the head with the scepter to win? Uh, that would have been after that Royal Rumble because that oh, was yeah, where right. Warrior lost the title and they did the retirement match at WrestleMania 7 and Savage was retired, quote-unquote, when in reality I think they were just preparing him for a babyface turn, essentially. What was uh, Warrior Hogan? That six? That was six. That was the previous year. That yeah. was probably Warrior's greatest match. Yeah. And quite frankly, it might have been Hogan's greatest match, too. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> two guys yeah. that were not known for having good matches ever. You put them together, and they actually had like a five, like a four-star match. What the hell? <laughs> anyway, back to Jim Neidhart. <laughs> Thank you, Pat Patterson. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, that I have watched that match recently, and I know we're paying tribute to Jim Neidhart, but we brought it up. I've watched that match recently. That match has Pat Patterson's thumb thumbprint all over it i was like yeah he talked them through this whole thing before they went out there <laughs> or this thing would have been just the drizzles <laughs> i mean come on but of course the the heart foundation lose the belts at wrestlemania 7 to the nasty boys who coincidentally or possibly not coincidentally were managed by jimmy hart and lo and behold what happens after that loss jim neidhart takes his leave from the ring and bret hart starts his solo career. Because I remember Jim was doing color commentary when Brett debuted the the sharpshooter. And right. it, it was Anvil that was really putting it over that, hey, hey, you're going to see Brett Hart do a new move. Right. Now, I, I could be wrong. What does your research told you? I think well, all the things I talked about, the plans were push the Rockers as the champs. Brett's going to go solo. I don't think Jim was really planning to retire. If I'm, I think he might have had a nagging shoulder injury that needed needed surgery or something was maybe why he they were doing it as well, was part of the timing. Did any of your research tell you anything about that? I think that's really what was going on behind the scenes, if I remember right. I think that is right, but I seem to recall that there may have been an online explanation that it was the blow to the head from Jimmy Hart's crash helmet uh, onto right. Jim that, that, that lost the match. And maybe they're, they're, maybe that's where the storyline info was. Yeah. The crash helmet must've been the, the, when he was, t when he was uh, managing the nasty boys. Right. They feuded with him too. That, yeah. Right. That, that, that was the WrestleMania seven uh, title switch. So, but I think if I remember right, I think Jim had a, I want to say it was his shoulder. Maybe it was his knee, but he had a nagging injury that had been needed surgery for a while. And so everything just lined up. But the belts on the, on the rockers, push Brett solo. Jim takes his time off and we can have him on commentary in the meantime, you know? So he does do commentary. We get Brett the solo career, which he pretty much had for the rest of his career. And really, it was late that year, I want to say, maybe early 92, that Anvil returned to the ring and formed the new foundation with Owen Hart, who had recently been rehired. Obviously, uh, Owen had worked before as the Blue Blazer, and he actually had a couple of matches under his belt in WCW, because I distinctly remember seeing Owen yep. in, in yep, WCW. Sure 
And what I also vividly remember was when they debuted the new foundation, Piper was doing commentary. And hearing Piper say, and I can't do the best Roddy Piper impression, so I'm not I'm not gonna try, but he said something about, oh, so this is Brett's brother. Well, I'll be if he doesn't look like Brett, which is hilarious to look at now. And really anybody who was privy to wrestling in the past who truly knew the business at that time knew that Roddy was a cousin to the heart. So yep. this yes, family yes, he's family, him, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I will say this about the new foundation. This is all due respect to Owen and Jim both. I think they were both great, tremendous in ring talents. I don't know what the people in creative were thinking with those those gimmicks they gave them. Those those the ring attire. That was some of the most god awful stuff. I mean, are you kidding me? You take Brett and, and Jim, and I've said this before. One of my favorite things about the Hart Foundation is you took two rugged, tough guys who looked like rugged, tough guys and who are legitimately rugged, tough guys. They made hot pink look tough. Okay. So you, I guess maybe they had this false sense of security thing. Well, if you made hot pink look tough, he'll make this crappy stuff look tough. <laughs> and, and no offense to Owen and, 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 and his memory. Owen just didn't have the same tough look that Jim and Brett had, did he? I mean, just right. my opinion, he didn't. So right. he was not going to be able to pull that off, you know? And I just, I remember seeing those and I'm going, because they had like the, didn't they have like the MC Hammer pants that were super baggy and the suspenders? And I'm going, mm-hmm. oh dear Lord. Oh dear Lord. And then uh, unfortunately for Owen, they tried to recycle them a few years later when they put them with Coco as high energy. I'm going, did they not learn? Come on. <laughs> right. I mean, I remember first seeing that and I'm like, what did, did somebody see a checker taxi cab and get expired inspired by that look? Cause that's kind of what it looked like. And those pants are so baggy. Look like they took a dump in their own pants. I mean, are you kidding me? And I mean, how do you go from making hot pink look like a tough, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I mean, we all know the heart foundation, hot pink was, I mean, hot, hot pink. And they looked like tough guys in it to that. I mean, it's just, Oh my gosh. I felt I'm sitting here and look back at it as a wrestler myself and go, Oh my God, I feel so sorry for both those brothers. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) They they just got stressed. Not that it was, I mean, I think Jim and and Owen worked well together. I think we, we've talked about already. Jim was a tag team specialist. He was a veteran. Owen at the time was doing moves that nobody was doing here in America, you know? So they, and once again, they had the same dynamic. I think that Brett and Jim had, you had, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bruiser and, and Jim, the big muscle guy, and the, and the high flyer slash te- technical guy in Owen. It's the same dynamic, you know. Right, absolutely. It was just, it just. I'm sorry, I don't. Rick Flair, Dusty Rhodes could. Well, I don't know. Maybe Dusty could have because Dusty made the polka dots work. I don't know if anybody <laughs> in the business that could have made those that gear work. They were like doomed to not get over, and so they just kind of right in the mid card. They never really got to where Brett and Jim were. Yeah, you know, at least I don't <laughs> think they ever did. Do you? No, no, and cause the new foundation really only lasted a couple of months, and I think they were trying to re-grab that magic because they did give Owen the nickname of the Rocket because obviously right. he was he was white meat babyface at the time, so it was the Anvil and the Rocket kind of playing As off of that, you know, the hitman of the Anvil, yeah. Right. And, and let's be honest, too. I mean, yes, Jim had some babyface runs. I think Jim, just because of his look, was a, a more of a natural heel. His yeah. mannerisms in the ring, his in-ring style, his look—he he was a, he was a natural heel. Uh, and I'm not saying guys can't do both. There've been a litany of guys in the business that were good at both. Uh, it's just you know, I think Jim was better suited as a heel personally. And when you think about it, I think he 
was a heel most of his career, certainly on on the national stage. Sure, 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 sure. And that brings us to the end of Anvil's first stint in WWF, where he then went to, I want to say it was... Was it Japan? Because uh, I know Owen. I think, uh, yes. I think Owen had yes. that high flying style because Owen was just coming off a run in Japan where he was in their, right. their junior heavyweight division. And, and I cannot remember the name of the company to save my life, but there was a, a, a brief live company in Japan at the time. It was called SWS, I think, like something wrestling sports. I can't remember. But they had a working deal with Vince, and I think that's where he went. I think you're correct. And flash forward another couple of years. Jim Neidhart comes back to WWF because this is the infamous time where they turned Owen heel. You know, Brett had the storyline. This is after Brett had won and lost the world title. Brett publicly declared that he was going to dedicate the rest of his career to teaming with Owen. And they had right. that that tag title shot. I want to say it was Rumble 94. I think it was whatever the, the same one that had the casket match between Taker and Yokozuna. I think that was the that one. Was the, where, is that the one where, where where Taker like ascended into the heavens after the match? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was like ninety four. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And they have the feud between Brett and Owen to kind of get that brother versus brother dynamic, and then they brought back Anvil as being the guy that warped Owen against his brother, and they played right. it up like it was Anvil really that had the animosity towards Brett. And he used Owen as as the catalyst uh, for that. Because I remember getting a WWF magazine around that time. Mm -hmm. And one of the images in it was Owen Hart looking all evil and Jim kind of leaning over him, like whispering in his ear, like he's telling him these deep, dark secrets. Right. Now, it was was this in this time frame we're talking about. Was this when Davy Boy was a top babyface in WCW, or had he, had he finished that run and come back to the WWF and started his second singles run there? I believe this would have been when he was babyface in '94. You know, teaming with Sting, Sting. and suplexing right. Vader and such. Yeah, because it wasn't long after that's when when he came back, and that's when they revealed that he was married to Brett's sister and and the sister of Jim's wife. I think. Mm-hmm. Because he had that heel run against Sean, and Cornette was managing him. That 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 would have been like ninety five, right? Ninety six, somewhere in there. Yeah, ninety five, uh, early ninety six, maybe. Right. Because uh, it was in the summer of nineteen ninety six that I remember this happening. I didn't know who it was at the time, but they brought out this masked wrestler who was Jim Neidhart under a mask, and they called him Who, and it was a play yep. off the Who's on First infamous right. uh, vaudeville sketch by. Abbott and Costello did it, wasn't it? Abbott and Costello, yes. Thank you. Um, And I'm going to do something I don't normally do here. And I'm going to uh, point out something Vince Russo said and agree with it. And like I said, I don't always (laughs) do this. But I am a fair man. Well, even uh, a blind squirrel gets a nut every once in a while, you know? (laughs) Right. I I am a fair man, and I will give credit uh, to where it's due. After they debuted Who, there was talk of getting a tag team partner for Who and calling him What. And Russo thought this was a terrible idea, like one of the worst ideas they could have. This is Vince Russo saying it's bad. So yes. that's, that's to tell you something. Wow, that's to tell you something. This is the same guy that wanted to cut off the dude's wee-wee with the, with the, with the samurai sword. That same guy. Yeah, that dude. 
Because this is July, maybe August of 1996. WCW has already turned Hogan heel and formed the NWO. And the WWE is going to run with a guy named who and a guy named what, you know? (laughs) I can't believe, though, that even Vince Russo, the guy who's had the mind, this guy's mind came up with the idea of having a love affair between Johnny Mae Young and and Mark Henry and her giving birth to a hand. Uh, That that same mind even knew this was a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's saying a lot, isn't it? Right. But wow. we'll fl- yeah, we'll we'll flash forward <laughs> another another couple of years here because there there was a time he had left and done some other appearances uh, elsewhere. Yeah, you know, and I, I also know, and, th- and I'm not once again, I'm not speaking ill of the dead. Uh, I don't want to do that. This is to, to honor and uh, pay tribute to Nyhart. He was very public about. It. He had a lot of drinking and substance abuse issues, and this was around the time I'm thinking some of these problems could have been rearing their ugly head you know i know it was around this time he was having some some issues so that could be something to do with it too you know right that would i would put it about right and really it was 97 when he had returned because this is where brett turned heel at the wrestlemania 13 against austin and he one of the best matches of all time yes and he rejoins up with owen and they bring back bulldog they bring back Jim and this is about the same time Brian Pillman, Pillman had in. yeah had essentially worked the entire business and got you worked for WCW <laughs> ECW and WWE all within a couple of weeks of each other and, yeah <laughs> yeah and they reform the Hart Foundation only this time it's a stable right and arguably one of the greatest stables certainly for its time and they were really only together sure. for a few months because you can't really have a Hart Foundation stable when the leader goes to the competition but right. you know that's that that and this really where we come to the end of my knowledge of jim neidhart's career because he did jump to wcw shortly after brett did but he really didn't wrestle much yeah that was one of those things i think everybody was so upset with the montreal screwdriver everybody but owen left and went what came to atlanta and my understanding is the only reason owen didn't come is because he actually couldn't right Right. The other guys, I think their contracts were coming up where they had some sort of clause or something to that effect. So everybody oh, I, think went some, and, I think I think at that point, Jim might have even been on like a like a nightly basis. You know, essentially it was a handshake deal where, you know, you'll get paid per appearance, you know, and if they needed him, they called him. And, and I think even Davy Boy might have been on one of those deals by that point. You know, yeah, it's very, very possible. But that brings us to the late 90s, the height of the Monday Night War. And really, when you do the math, uh, Jim's in his early 40s by now. So he's really getting into the twilight of his in-ring career. And I don't think he really appeared on WWE much after that, except for nostalgia one-offs. So do you know anything else about his run in the late 90s, early 2000s? No, like I said, I think he was also battling demons at that point. Age was catching up with him. The girls were getting probably to an age. I'm speaking out of turn here. I just speculation again, but as a wrestler myself, it's about that point usually in everybody's career. We've been on the road for so long. You're away from your kids, and, and next thing you know, it's like you're, you're there for their birth, and then you know you wake up the next morning, and they're, oh my god, they're in high school. You know what I'm saying? Right. Kind of do the math. I think that probably was a lot of the issues going on with Jim at that point. I, like I said, I'm just complete speculation, ladies and gentlemen, on my part. I just, I'm a wrestler. I know wrestlers. I know how we are. I know how I was. I know how they are. Just is what it is. It's, it's usually a litany of a lot of being on the road and just the buildup of injuries. If you have substance abuse issues, it's, you've been on them probably long enough to where they're going to catch up with you. It's about that point in time in your career when all that 
kind of just comes to a head and explodes. And that's about the time we're talking about in Jim Neidhart's career. So there you go. Now, let me ask you as we wind up, did he have any appearances for, you're the TNA guy, so did he have any appearances for TNA in the 2000s? Yeah, he did appear, I believe it was during the weekly pay-per-view days. Either that, it was on the, when Impact, I think, was on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, j- just just going by memory, yeah. So this had been like before they signed Kurt Angle, before they signed Mick Foley and, and, and Hogan and all those guys. I believe so, yeah. I, I, I could be wrong. So their biggest name stars at the time were AJ Styles, but didn't know anybody who he was. Who else? Who was their biggest star at that point? Probably Christian? Well, Christian came along, I want to say, 2004, 2005, so maybe. But yeah, Jeff Hardy was there uh, in in the weekly pay-per-view days. Uh, guys like, really, uh, James Storm, I think, probably probably fits in there. Right, uh, right, yeah. You know, Jerry Lynn. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But I think we can say, as we wind up here, that, like I said at the top of the show, he, he was probably best suited as a tag wrestler. And I always liked the description that was given... For the Hart Foundation, it's how Brett would would say it, which is they would work like a tank and a Porsche. And I think really with the new foundation, it was you know a tank and a rocket, so to speak, or or or, or an airplane. Right. Well, some of my favorite tag teams of all time had that same dynamic. The Hart Foundation falls into that that where you had the 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 bruiser and then the technical guy. Um, one of the one of the more more recent ones, and it's still not that recent, still 20 years ago, would have been Vicious and Delicious in WCW, which was Buff Bagwell and uh, Scott Norton. I think a very underrated tag team. Same dynamic. And one of my favorites from my childhood, uh, I don't think I have to, to put over these guys any more than, than you know, was Valentine and Flair here in the Carolinas in the 70s. Same thing. Valentine was the was the bruiser and Flair was a technical guy. You know, So <laughs> that dynamic works well. I think the Hearts probably did it better than anybody else. I think they were uh, not to take anything away from the two t- other two teams I mentioned. I just think they did it the best. Um, uh, it just you know that they, they they looked well together. They had great chemistry. Um, Jim Neidhart was uh, he didn't have a I didn't have the bodybuilder body of a Hogan or a, a War- Road Warriors or Ultimate Warrior, but he just looked like a big, thick, strong dude you didn't want to mess with. You know, as you like to say, like you could win a fight. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I talk all the time on here about promos and how impro- important promos are, and it's a lost art form in the business. One of my favorite promos of all time was actually a Jim Neidhart promo. And you would, you know, you wouldn't think that Neidhart's not the first name that pops in your mind when you think of like great promos. You think, you know, Flair and holding the gators down or piper and don't throw rocks to the guy with the machine gun or take the damn money by harley or dusty and hard times i mean those are the ones we think of as iconic you know but this promo was just a regular old promo on wwe television and, and when they were heels in the mid 80s and he, he he i can't remember what jim said i just remember you know him doing the stroking that goatee like he'd always do and he ended the promo he, the, the gist of the promo was you know, I'm crazy, I'm violent, you don't want to mess with me. And he ended the promo with literally punching the camera. I mean, so hard <laughs> that there was a crack on the lens of the of the camera. And I was going, I'm sitting there as, you know, a six, 15, 16-year-old kid going, that guy's really nuts. I, I knew how much that probably hurt his hand. As I got older, I realized, man, that had to have come out of his paycheck. <laughs> you know, but 
it was, I mean, how effective something as simple as, I mean, he literally punched the can. That had to hurt his hand. <laughs> you know how thick those lenses are on the, on those, on those expensive cameras. Absolutely. And I, yeah. You know, and it, it just, the little things like that, you know, uh, are what make promos great. And here's a guy who's not, it, it just worked. And, and I don't know why that promo sticks out to me. That is my greatest memory of Jim Neidhart. It's just like that one promo and everything that, that, the, that the announcers had been telling me and he's been talking about for three or four years and a flash of one punch, he proved it right. And I was like, I was totally bought into Jim Neidhart from that point on. So there you go. I think my biggest memory, at least from a live wrestling aspect, because those that know me well know that I have not attended a WWE show in well over 20 years. I think the last WWF show I went to would have been a house show and Savage was was champion. But this was a time where Slaughter, Sergeant Slaughter had, had come back and he was feuding with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And it, the advertised match was Hacksaw Jim Duggan against Sergeant Slaughter. And Slaughter, I believe, had General Adnan at this point. Uh, you know, Sheik Adnan, Ali, uh, Casey. Yeah, Al Casey. I, yeah. Al, yes. Al Casey. Who okay. was 127 then? <laughs> right, right. He's one of those guys that, like, you know how we say Robert Fuller went from 18 to 40. I think uh, Adnan went from 18 to like 75. You know, and then just right never, away. Yeah, I think you to Harley. I, I think Harley races. Like, even when I was a kid, I think Harley races always like he's 50 years old. You know. Right. <laughs> but what I'm getting at was it was supposed to be. Duggan versus Sarge, only for whatever reason, Duggan was not on the uh, on the show. Again, going back to that card subject to change. And <laughs> in one of his final WWE appearances, to, to my knowledge, and it was a house show, believe it or not, Andre the Giant came out in support of Anvil. And Andre was on crutches because... Oh, it had to be at the end of his, towards the end of his yes. life. And he had to be yeah. in a lot of pain. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole part that was played for comedy was Andre would get riled up, he'd shake his crutches in the air because he he was he had a a, 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 ro- a ringside seat so to speak and I think Andre whacked the stairs I want to say with the crutch uh-huh. and Sarge suddenly like has like a Vietnam flashback or something like that because he ducks, he, he lays like down, <laughs> covers his head, and he, like he look around like he thinks bombs are dropping or something like that. Right. Completely totally, ridiculous, but totally that, sold it. Totally yes. sold it. <laughs> but in that era of WWE, you know, where everything was kind of cartoon characters uh, to to an extent, it, I think it worked for the story they were trying to tell. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so we're going to wind up this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. Once again, you can follow along in the show notes at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com slash Anvil. And we are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. Tune in and really the podcast device of your choosing, as I like to say, because if you can do a search for a podcast in a podcast player, you can probably find us. We are Classic Wrestling Memories. we got subscribe buttons up at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. And if you do like what you hear, look us up on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a review because we like to know how we're doing. I'll, I like any, any form of feedback, especially if it's genuine. So let us know what you really think. And 
you can find us on social media at TWBP Show. That's short for the Wrestling Brethren Podcast Show, and at TWB Podcast, as well as if you want to chat with other wrestling fans, you can go to BehindTheSquaredCircle.com. And I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com. So, Train, anything uh, you want to let, let the fans know about or anything, any parting thoughts about Jim Neidhart before he close up shop? No, no, just sad we lost another one. I mean, just another one of those guys I watched growing up that made me want to become a wrestler, you know, and it, it's it's the one thing that's the one opponent that no wrestler kicks out of. We all we all do the job for father time at some point. And, uh, you know, I, I know he's got uh, beautiful daughters and wife that he left behind. And everything I've been told by guys in the business, he was a very loving father and grandfather. And, you know, I know they miss him. My condolences go to them at this time. Um, it's it, it, it's sad. I mean, there's not many hearts left now, you know, Um I think it's even more important why when I see Natty wrestling now and 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 Harry Smith how important they are they're kind of carrying that legacy on you know um, mm-hmm. so once again my condolences to the whole Hart family to his especially to his wife and his daughters and his grandkids um, uh, it, let's end this on a happy note uh, I can always be reached uh, at uh, Crazy Train underscore JB on Twitter. And we, pr- I promise you, uh, one of the next times you hear us, we will be talking about the greatest wrestler on God's green earth, Harley Race. So that's something to look forward to. I, too, want to echo those sentiments. I, I you know, extend my deepest condolences, uh, thoughts, and prayers uh, to the Hart family. I know you can just tell by the pictures that really have been coming out, quite frankly, since, since his passing with, with uh, Natty and her dad. I mean, she obviously adored and loved her father so she must all the daughters must really be be devastated at, at, at this point so uh, again you can reach me at seth at a1-wrestling.com or that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of classic wrestling memories talking jim the anvil Nightheart, and we will talk to you folks again next time for classic wrestling memories volume 24 Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Heart Foundation, we work in mysterious ways. <laughs> you know, the Hitman and I, we've been world tag team champions. But if the Hitman, if he has a personal issue that he wants to take care of, that's fine with me. And if I got a personal issue that I got to take care of personally, that's fine with me too, and fine with the Hitman. But when you get the Hitman and the Anvil together as a group, as a team, <laughs> as a well-meshed, oiled team, moving and jelly, going, baby, we are good. <laughs> Possibly the best. <laughs>